We invite you to open your Bibles with us to Mark chapter 8. We're going into the 8th chapter of Mark today. And we're going to read 10 verses that we want to look at and let God speak to each of us as he chooses. In those days, this is taking place around the Sea of Galilee. In those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them, and they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered those to be served as well, and they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmuntha. You're going to notice with us as we look into this today, we're going to see somewhat of a parallel to several chapters before we were looking at several weeks ago when Jesus fed 5,000. Now we're going to see Jesus feeding 4,000. And we're going to see a parallel but, and we say, you know, why does this happen this way sometimes in the word of God? And why does even the Holy Spirit, uh, did we get it with 5,000? And there has been this burden that the Holy Spirit has placed in our heart as we have been reading this and praying over this for a period of time. And it was a question that just would not leave. So I must share it with you. And that question was, can God do it again? That's the question. Because within the flesh mind is this doubting thought that God can't do it again. And today, as we look into his word, we are going to see our Lord Jesus Christ, we've already read about it, doing it again. How many times can he do it? How many times can he do it in various ways? And here we're going to recognize and see the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as he performs this miracle in the Sea of Galilee. And we're going to see that which surrounds him doing it again. But I, that question just would not linger. I must share it with you. Can God do it again? Can he do it personally in our lives? You see, if God doesn't do it personally in our lives, there will be nothing that will happen out there. If our lives are not changed inwardly, all of the philosophy and concept will make no good, do no good whatsoever out there. Can God do it again in our families? Can God raise up in this sanctuary godly homes of men and women who are praising the Lord and raising up a godly seed? And we know this, we know this. What Jesus is doing, he's teaching something here that's going to go beyond the Sea of Galilee and the miracle of five loaves and two fishes. It's no longer five loaves. Now it's just a few loaves. It's just a few fishes. But now there's 4,000 instead of 5,000. And Jesus is teaching something because he knows how quickly we forget how powerful he is. Now let's take this and go into the word of God and unpack this together. If you notice, Jesus was surrounded always by large crowds at this time of his ministry. There would come a time that there'd be very few, but at this time people were being moved. And the word of God said, in those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, 
So you notice here what's happening. They are, again, a big crowd. We remember this, the 5,000, and they're coming up empty. They have nothing to eat. We're going to see the strikes that are against these people, the things that are going to happen as we look at this. But notice what Jesus says in the next verse. He says, I feel compassion for the people. And here was Jesus, again, expression, expressing one of the great and powerful characteristics of his life. Compassion begins inwardly. It begins inside the soul. But compassion doesn't stop there. It expresses itself beyond and around. It spreads, as we'll see this morning, but Jesus was, I believe our last, our last reference was, he was moved with compassion. That's one of the translations. He feels compassion. He looked at the crowd. They had nothing to eat. And he says this, he goes on, he says, because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. It's possible that the crowd was actually that hungry. They wouldn't leave. As you would follow the message of Jesus Christ, it was so compelling that it drove people to a place that they probably loved it and hated it. But many of them couldn't walk away because it was still calling back to them. You see, Jesus, when he would look at the crowd, he would see the crowd differently than we would see the crowd. When we see the crowd, we see people. We see personalities. We see cultures. We see ethical folks, Jesus would look at the crowd and he would see the inner heart of the person. You see, when Jesus sees hunger, he's looking beyond outward hunger. He doesn't stop with what he first sees on the outside. He looks inside. You see, this is what the great teacher of the word of God again and again is that God looks inside. Man looks outside. We get ready to come to church today. We look in the mirror. We look at our hair. We look to see if we have something that kind of matches on. This is who we are. Jesus is looking at the heart, and as he saw these people, and he was moved, notice this, he saw them move, and he was moved with compassion. But I want us to notice the odds that were against these people. You see, when Jesus begins to work, he's usually working against insurmountable odds. A lot of times we say, if we can just help Jesus out in the program. And here we're going to see the odds against these people. He, he says, if I, he says, first of all, they've been with me three days. They're hungry. They don't have anything to eat. And he says, if I send them away to, hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. They're too far away. And some of them, have come from a great distance. So you notice this. These people did not just come from Galilee. They had picked up the trail of Jesus and followed him a long ways, and they got to this place. Now the disciples, which is so characteristic of all of us, they saw the odds. They saw the outside. They recognized right away that which was seemingly impossible, if you'd look at this with me. Verse four, it says, his disciples answered him, where will anyone, anyone, be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? So not only were they a long ways away and they were hungry and they had nothing to eat, but it was desolate. And the disciples looked at this, even though they had just came through this walk with Jesus, and they saw this insurmountable task. Who would ever be able to find enough food for these people? And this is often the flesh response of mankind. It is the religious response of mankind. It is the acceptable religious response of a worldview that has conveniently moved God to the side. And he has been placed in a little corner of the life of the human heart. But he's not center anymore. 
He's no longer in the very inner part of the being. And I asked that question because the Holy Spirit kept asking it to me again and again in the study. Can God do it again? Can he? And oftentimes it's this inward battle of the human heart as we calculate and we philosophize and we surmise and we wonder, can he really do it again? Can God? And I want to take you back for just a moment as we enter further in this text to one little guy who said yes to God, whose name was Nehemiah. You may remember the, the story back in Nehemiah. We're going to linger just a moment because of one truth we want to get. But Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer under Artaxerxes the king, who was the king of Persia at that time, and Israel was in captivity. The city had been decimated. I believe Israel, many accounts say Israel has been destroyed seven times and been rebuilt. But when Nehemiah found out, it just hit him how that there, the city, city's walls were leveled. The word of God says he just wept, and he wept. He was so shaken by the fact that his own people had no city any longer. It was gone, and he wept, and far, finally he went to Artaxerxes the king. This little, teeny guy called the king's cupbearer went to the great big king of that time, the ruler of the known world. And he says, I want to go back to Jerusalem, and I want to rebuild those walls. Maybe we can't grasp it entirely till you stand there at the walls of Israel, and you look up some places 50 to 75 feet, and you look at the, th the depth of those walls, and they're not five feet. They're not often 10 feet. There's a road going around those walls on the top, and Nehemiah says, I want to go back and rebuild those walls. And Nehemiah simply took 42,360 men, and in 52 days, the walls were built. 52 days. Four and a half miles of wall that was completed because one man said, yes, God, you can do it. One man. Now, there's all kinds of people he integrated we're going to see this as we look deeper in the teaching today, that we've never, been in, we've never been called to do it alone. We've never been called to walk alone. God doesn't need spiritual giants. He needs spiritual servants. He needs men and women who are willing to get under and around. And Nehemiah would reach out just like that and grab some other person. And he would drop him at the sheep's gate. And he would drop him at the golden gate. And there it was that God was working in a marvelous way. But as Nehemiah looked back on this, and we just have a couple verses in Nehemiah chapter 9, because we are looking at something that Nehemiah grasped in the midst of the desolation. He saw something amazing. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds that you performed among them. This is verse 17, Nehemiah 9. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. This is what happened to Israel. But you are a God of forgiveness, said Nehemiah, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Nehemiah was acknowledging a God that was so amazing that he would not let go even in spite of their rebellion and stubbornness and indifference and pride, Nehemiah saw this God and he believed him. Verse 19, you in your great compassion did not forsake them in the wilderness. Nehemiah saw the compassion of God. What was moving this man to go back to Jerusalem? What kept him going for 52 days when Sanballat arose, Tobiah arose, the critics arose? The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light, them, light for them the way in which they were to go. Nehemiah was saying, God, I see you as this amazing God of compassion. 
One more verse here in the same chapter, verse 31. Nevertheless, in your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. Oh God, you could have forsaken those people, but you didn't do it. For you are a gracious and a compassionate God. Nehemiah turns and says, God, you did it. And it was your compassion and your greatness that made the difference. You know, there's a, a beautiful verse in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. I, I, I just love it because when we look at the way God works and the ways, the characteristics of, of God in which we are going to witness at the Sea of Galilee through his son, Jesus Christ. It says, therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. It's hard to imagine that sometimes, that God is rooting so much for us that he wants to bless so richly and so fully in ways we can't even imagine. And this is the God we're looking at this morning. And notice why. He longs to be gracious to you, therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you, for the Lord is a God of justice how blessed are all those who long for him. Isaiah was saying, you look at the balance here. Look at this thing. Look where God is and look often where we are. You know what God does? He gets off of this, this platform. He walks out here. He catches every pew. He's right there. Not only that, he serves there too. This is the God in which Nehemiah was looking to, and this is the God of the Word of God. Now, I want us to think a little bit of, of uh, this, this desolation that was taking place there. It was just amazing. We're back in Mark chapter 8, and Jesus is going to teach an amazing lesson here, and I want us to get this because it's probably the, the root of the message, but I want us to get the message. But Jesus is going to amazingly uh, work uh, through this. But notice that which is the barrier to Jesus working, okay? Now, Jesus goes over the top of these barriers, but you know what it is? It's doubt, it's un un unbelief, it's despair, it's desolation. God, how can that work? Not here. You see, that is the whisper of the enemy that comes in the heart of every person who follows Jesus. It comes a different way, not here. No way. Not this time, not this place, not this home, not this marriage, not this circumstance. The enemy will whisper that little lie. But I want us to notice because Jesus is an amazing God. And I just jotted down a, a couple of verses that are some of our, our diversions when we come here. You know, Israel was one who looked back often God delivered them out of Egypt, and he was taking the promised land, but it wasn't very long. They wanted to go back. And there's a verse that, I, uh, that we have on the screen that in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10, that says, do not say what is it that the former days were better than these. Don't go there. Because there is this tendency to say, I remember the time, real life, in 1992 through 1997, in Ellensburg, Washington, when the fiery revival was so hot that when the message was done, the people didn't move from their seats. They froze. And the word of God says, don't say in your heart, those days are better than today. We're going to see something, though, as, as a, we go on, and, and remember this. The word is near you. The word is nigh you. It is even in your midst. Now, what the word of God teaches, we're going to look at a couple other verses before we jump into this. One we're going to see is over in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. And remember this also. No one escapes the cross of Christ in the middle of trial. But here, the writer of Hebrews said this. He said, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great flight of affliction. Remember those days in which God worked mightily? 
He opened doors. Souls were saved. But notice this, he says, remember this also. You endured a great flight of infliction. Where God is working, there is great testing and trial and hardship. Mark it down. You walk in a church, and God has given us that liberty to see many churches in our lifetime, and you see a church just praising God, and I look around and say, someone's suffering majorly. God works through trial. If you look on with me, there's another verse we want to consider here. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 21. And having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God is coming, they were saying, okay, Lord, when are you coming back? He answered him, them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. And we need to get this. Nor will they say, look, here it is, nor there it is. For if we behold, he said, a little powerful secret, the kingdom of God is in you. Everything for revival, everything for miracles, everything for God to do it again is within you. You have got within you what God will use to do marvelous things when we simply open our hands and our hearts and say, Lord, I really, really believe you can do it again. There's a verse, one more verse, the woman at the well in John chapter four, verses 21 and 20 through 24, just to get this little picture. She was speaking to Jesus about where you worship and is it Jerusalem or is it this other place or this place? And Jesus said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You won't do it here anymore. You worship, worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. But then Jesus said something very, very important. An hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be as worshipers. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. You see what the Lord is saying? He said, it's not about Jerusalem. Dare I say it's not about finding just the perfect church? Dare I say it's not just finding the perfect circumstances? What he's saying is, true worshipers of God will find God in spirit and truth in their hearts as they worship God. Now Jesus is teaching something as we linger for, for, further here that we're going to be diving into regarding the miracle. That we want to get a couple lessons here today, but, but you notice something that is so true in our lives. We have our way and God's way. You've noticed this with me. We often wouldn't see it at the time. It's my way. Sometimes it's my way or the highway or my way or God's way. And, and you've noticed with me that when that happens, it ends up in, uh, when it's my way, it doesn't seem to work. God bless Deb and I here about a, wow, I guess about, about almost two weeks ago with this pet. His name was Fred. We didn't ask for him. He just came through the door one day, and we don't know who, who left the door open, but I think it was probably me. <laughs> and he was a big lizard. Pretty close to that when you got his tail involved in it. He was a big guy. And we were going to get him out, so the first thing I did was I Googled how to get rid of lizards, and they talked about using a free, real cold water with a spray, a spray thing. And you spray it on the lizard, and when he gets sprayed, he freezes, he doesn't move. Well, that didn't work for us. <laughs> and so what we did was we also read that you could go and take a pillow or a blanket and throw it over the lizard. And he doesn't exist well in dark conditions, so it'll freeze up. And then you'll be able to get him, gather him up, get him outside. And so we had, I would come in to come home from work and I'd walk around. Here was a blanket and a pillow and a pile and another one over here. And this is all happening in our bedroom. 
So for you, especially probably you sisters, but probably it was true for me too. You know, when you go to bed at night, you think a little bit about getting in bed differently. <laughs> now here is what happened, okay? Last Saturday was going to be lizard day. We was going to get him no matter what. It was our way. We had everything, and so we pulled everything out from underneath the beds. We've seen pictures of grandchildren and children that were one year old we hadn't seen. It's a great exercise to actually get things out underneath those beds. And as we were doing it, all of a sudden, I finally left Debbie and I said, I, I'm wore out. I can't get this guy. He can outthink me. <laughs> and so Amazon came that day and Debbie had thought of something else and she had ordered sticky glue traps. So we put the sticky glue trap there and in two hours, Fred was in the trap. And he, then, real quick, he was outside. <laughs> As I was chasing around, I was beginning to go into the text. I didn't know where Pastor Brad was going to end. But I thought, isn't this amazing? Our way doesn't work. Now, some of you have got testimony that said, no, I got him. And sometimes that works in the flesh one time. But our way doesn't work. And what Jesus is going to show here is a lesson because there is this wrestling in the inner heart when we come to places of desolation in which we want to do it, but we want to do it our way. And so we get the information and we look for it and we look it up. We read every how-to not book we can or whatever it is. And then finally, by God's grace, we come up empty and now it's time to do it God's way. And this is what Jesus shows us in this story. And it's such a beautiful story, uh, a beautiful lesson that we, we trust we can all get it again because uh, we're asking ourselves that question this morning. Now, we're not just asking it for the whole sanctuary. We're, we want the Holy Spirit to come in every heart and say, can God do it again? He's probably already given you something. That's how he works. He's probably doing something there right now. He directed the people, notice what he said, first off, he directed the people to sit down on the ground, okay? Jesus worked in an orderly way. He, he said, I want you to sit down, rest, let me move, let me work. Jesus so often does that. First, if he's going to work, he's going to begin working with us to resting in the Lord and waiting patiently, trusting in Jesus. And so they needed to respond to his voice, sit down on the ground. But if we look, look and we follow this, because we're going to see things here that are just pretty, very necessary for God to do it again. He, he started taking the seven loaves. He said, sit down. He's taking the seven loaves. You can see him all saying, hold it. What's he doing this? To, what's he doing here? Seven loaves, no fish yet. But he's telling them to sit down, trust me, I'm speaking, I'm the leader, I'm the guide, I'm the one who is, who is doing everything, now sit down. Now the next thing he did, we need to grab this very, very carefully and closely, he gave thanks. He was moving into something that was impossible in the eyes of men, and he was giving thanks to God. The word of God so often speaks that powerful prayer is filled and surrounded by thanks. Philippians says, in everything, by supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Jesus was giving thanks. Also, I see something else here. When you're thankful, you're joyful. When you lose the heart of thanksgiving, you lose the heart of joy. It flees you. It is so easily that which drifts away from our life. And here it was, the word of God says, Jesus had the people sit down. He took the seven loaves. He gave thanks. Notice and he broke them. He begins to break them up. And I'm sure there would have been someone there that knew nothing about what had happened earlier at the 5,000 would have said, look at this, what a joke. And when the Holy Spirit begins to move, guaranteed it will be a joke. 
When God begins to speak, most people will never understand what God is saying to you. But notice what he did then. He gave thanks, broke them, and started giving them to his disciples. Jesus, the Son of God, the King of Kings, the creator of the universe, did not take those loaves and reach out to people. He grabbed these men. He started using others. Notice what he did. You'll do, you'll go where I can't go. You take that row, you take that row. You go over there, you go in the back, you go here. Jesus not only gave thanks, but he reached out to the disciples. When God is working, you may have been stirred, but he may be calling you and I to reach out somewhere else. Just like we see here in this He reaches out, he gives to the disciples to serve them. And then notice, they serve them to the people. Jesus was doing it again. Jesus was once again overcoming the impossible. Jesus was going to do another amazing miracle, but Jesus was doing that which blessed others, using others to bless others, thankful, using others to bless others. Notice the pattern. Jesus was looking beyond himself and his disciples, and here it was. He's giving to the people, and notice what it says. Jesus was starting with just the gatherers the person that just came in the door. Have you ever noticed that when Jesus calls you often, he is calling you to something or someone that is least? You know, sometimes we say, Lord, I really want to serve you, but, you know, I'd like to help out President Trump. It'd be great to go over and pray with him. Never got a phone call. And Jesus says, will you go where I tell you to go? Will you serve the people? Will you serve impartially? Will you serve thankfully? Will you serve lovingly? Will you work with others? Will you bless others to go where you cannot go and be what you cannot be? That's in the mission field. That's really one of the great great heart of this church is to bless those to go where we cannot go and be what we cannot be. Oftentimes in native places, they, with the message of Jesus, will carry it so much clearer and further and more direct than we will. But we just need to be there and break the loaves and get others involved and let God do the work that only he can do. And this is what Jesus did here. They also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he ordered those to be served as well. Notice he, he went down to these smallest, just a, a couple little fish. I'll bless these too. You notice where Jesus is, is at? He's in thanksgiving. He's at blessing. He's at others. He's at the least. And this is where he is working at this time. And they ate. Notice what happened here. When this was over, they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over out of the broken pieces. God multiplied their labors beyond anything they could even imagine. Some of you have stood on ground where you have witnessed that. You have seen it in your families. You have seen it in your churches. You have seen it in your communities. Possibly you've seen it somewhere in another part of the world. But notice, when the Lord works, he works to bless other people. And he works in overflow and abundance. And it's an amazing, amazing truth of the word of God in which when God, when people say yes to God and say, God, I believe you can do it again, 
what God's going to do, do again is going to be more than they ever, ever imagined. We have been privileged a few times in our life to stand on ground like that. It was holy ground. Some of you have too. But the question this morning for all of us is, can God do it again? Can he do it again? Could he do it again in Calvary Surprise? Could he do it again in Surprise, Arizona, in Phoenix, Arizona? How about in the United States of America that we watch that movement away from God so readily that today most people don't have any interest in church? Could he do it again? What he's saying here at the miracle, the miracle 4,000, he's saying, get it, folks, get it, because when I work, I'll keep working. I will do it again. I can multiply beyond anything that you even think is possible. And this is what happens. There's a verse in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24, that's a beautiful verse. It kind of flips around in different ways, but it has a tremendous message. It, speaks, it says, there is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due, and yet it results only in want. Now, what the writer is saying is this is going against the flow of our first thought. Our first thought is gather. Our first thought is hold back. But here it's saying scatter, spread. Allow me to multiply, to work through you in ways that you didn't even know I can. God has placed us in a, in a place for many years of our life. We were involved in agriculture. I was a first generation that didn't farm full time, going back five or six generations. Felt sorry for myself for a while. No one else did. So I just did something else. But you know what God always should in, in agriculture? You take something so small and you place it in that ground, and it will grow so great. All I want you to do is place it there and let me bring forth the yield. We were just up there last week. I brought back a bunch of honey crisp apples because that's one of the things God has multiplied in our little place we've lived. But God takes the smallest smallest thing, and makes it so large, but he asks us, place the seed in the ground. That verse goes on, and it says, the liberal soul, I, I left you alone there, the generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. And what it's saying is, okay, the person's giving is losing, but God's giving back. And the person that waters is going to be watered by God. And this is one of those little secret verses that says you'll never outgive God. He's too abundant. He's too, he's too resourceful. His ways are past finding out. And I come back, can God do it again? One more area of the word of God we want to go to because it's so powerful. And it's Philippians chapter 4, verses 19, I believe, 14 through 19. And here it is. We see a church that answered, yes, God can do it again. It was called the Macedonian church, the church of Philippi. And they believed in their simplicity, and God began to get, do it again. But I want us to notice how he was doing it again. Nevertheless, you have well done well to share with me in my affliction. They were reaching out to Paul in his struggles, in his trials. You yourselves know also, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you only. You're the only church giving to me. They were giving when it wasn't status quo. They were working outside the box because God had laid it on their heart. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once to my needs. They gave again and again and again. They were not going to let go of this servant of God. Not that I seek a gift itself, for, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. Paul says, you know what? I don't need that money. I don't need the, the offerings you're giving me. But you know what I want? 
I want to see Jesus in you. I want to look past the gift and see the giver that's moving through your life to God's glory. And we're here saying, could God do it again? Verse 18, but I have received everything in full and have abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what I, you have sent, a fragment, aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And here Paul is just bubbling over with praise and thanksgiving and saying, you know what, your blessing... The blessing of your gifts have blessed me so much. Notice something else here, though. This man's going to go watch God take little things and turn them all over the known regions of Macedonia. But you see what he has? He has a thankful heart. When a thankful heart flees us, God can't work the same. It's like we close this door. And God can't quite get in. But notice what Paul said now. Now he looks back at this church that had been giving in verse 19 and says, but my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. What he's saying to the, that church is church you gave to where it hurt. It literally hurt. As God is speaking to each of us today about doing it again, he may be speaking to someone here in the sanctuary about giving until it really hurts. He may be speaking to someone here about loving till it really hurts, really hurts. He may be speaking to someone else about forgiving till it really hurts. He may be speaking to someone else here about going going till it really, really hurts. You see, Jesus was speaking of that which was so much greater than what it is. You see, we can't change other people. We, we are not good at that. God is perfect at that. But we can let him come in and change us. Can he do it again? Can he do it again? I'm going to take you to one little guy, 26 years old, that lived in Scotland in the year of 1904, whose name was Evan Roberts. And Evan Roberts just had this little vision, a little tiny vision, and somewhere in that vision was multitudes of people. And from 1904 to 1905, this little guy walked the streets of Scotland. He walked where he was welcome. He went where he was not welcome. And he shared a God who could do it again. One year later, over 100,000 people in that region had given their heart to Jesus. Because one person had said, yes, God, you can do it again. It didn't stop in Scotland. It spread into Scandinavia, the surrounding countries. There was other names, other people, other churches. Because there was this little guy that said yes to God. And you know, we think about it and we say, well, what does God really require of us? What does he really want? He just wants a yes. He doesn't ask us to do some great big thing. He just asks us to say yes. Do you ever, have you ever noticed in the Bible with me how many times God has said yes to us? This Bible shouts with yeses to us from God. Yes, I love you. Yes, I'll send my son. Yes, I'll go to the cross. Yes, I'll provide all your needs. Yes, I'll rise again the third day according to the word. I'm a yes God. But then he, he quietly comes down to us as his disciples and he says, will you say yes to me? Will you say yes to me. That's how God does it again. You know, I think there's a lot of times I've, I've just a confession of my heart. I have one of the places that I've sinned before God and I've asked forgiveness many times. I've, I've got the self-righteous spirit. Why isn't other people doing like me? And the Holy Spirit has convicted me and said, you're living in sin, John. You're living in sin. 
You say yes to God, I'll take care of them. You know, there was this little 16-year-old girl. This was before the great years of revival in China, in which today some estimations thousands and thousands are coming to Jesus every day in China. The church is growing like a, it only takes a spark to get a little fire going. When I've been there, I thought, this is amazing. Came back to churches where there was 40 just shortly before. Now there's 15 to 20,000 three years later. Someone said yes to God. One little girl in China about 35 years ago said yes to God. She was 16 years old, very close to my age. She said yes to God. And God took that little girl all over China, sharing the word of God with a broken down body in poor health until finally the authorities threw her in prison. It didn't work. They got her out, threw her in another prison, and they finally threw her in the most desolate, barren, unbelieving women's prison in China where there were a thousand women. And they said, they looked at her and says, and not one of them believe. They all hate God. Now go. And that little girl prayed to God and asked God to give her strength to do what God wanted, to, wanted her to do. And God told her, take little pieces of paper and tear them up wherever you can find them and write a verse because they came back and said, you're going to go into every one of those cells and you're going to scrub those women's floor cells for your job. And you're going to work over 16 hours a day. She prayed to God that she could get by in one hour of sleep a night. And she wrote a verse and wrote a verse. And as she'd leave the cell, she'd give them a smile and drop a little piece of paper. And for three years, she did that. And three years later, the government says she's got to go. That entire prison has been converted to Christ. There isn't one unbelieving woman here. And she says, I can't leave. Now she's only 19 years old. I cannot leave. Her body had been ravaged by pain. I can't go. And they drug her through the walls of that prison. And those women came to the wall. And it was a, it was a wall with a gated, a gated wall. They could look out and they were all singing praises. For two and a half hours, she laid there and she says, I don't want to leave because this is my church back there. You see where her heart got? When you start serving and saying yes to God, you'll love the people that God puts around you, guaranteed. This is how God works. And out of that, out of that area came a tremendous revival. Not thousands, not millions. Now we're well over 100 million people had said yes to God, going to prison for their faith, suffering every Sunday or wherever they worship. We have been placed in those settings and watched that. But you know what I just see is a bunch of people who said yes to God. But what does it mean to you? What does it mean today? You know, sometimes we think of church almost like a nice, cozy club, don't we? It's a great way of life to be a Christian. It's just wonderful to have all these friends, but that's not really what the Word of God is teaching here. I want to get one more thing there. You know what happened right after he performed this? Jesus said, uh, he left. He was gone. And here goes the little boat, and he leaves, and he goes to the next city. He was no longer there. And I've wondered, what's the significance of Mark catching that? Is it possible that Mark was catching that to say, I want you to see something here. Jesus doesn't stay, but he stays in you. He stays in you. And this is what we, you have today. This is what we have today is Jesus in us. The word of God, Paul would write it, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. But can God do it again? I don't know where it is here this morning. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're going through. I know there's struggling marriages right here. I know there are struggling relationships in many ways right here, and you're wondering if God can do it again. And I take you to the message today that God can do it again. Not only again, but again and again and again and again if we will say yes. It sounds simple, but God asks us when we say yes to die. 
die to, die to self and live for him. And I don't know what that will mean today, but I think that every person here is called, and you know probably where to say yes to God. I don't know where for you. But where God is asking us to say yes, say it today. Don't leave. There's going to be an altar up here today. I'm not going to leave. I'm going to be at this altar. Because I didn't preach this just to you. I preached it to me. If you want to join me after prayer at this altar, you're more than welcome. If you want to have prayer at your seat today, you're more than welcome. If you just want to pray in your heart, you're more than welcome. But I believe God is calling we as people to say yes, to let him do it again. Let him restore what the, what the locust and canker worm have taken away. Let him bring back what it looks like ashes and make beauty out of it because simply by faith we say yes to God. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for this great message that you've given us today that you do it again and again and again and again. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you uh, take just a small, few small loaves and multiply it in so many ways. You, have you teach this in so many ways through your word. You show us examples of churches and people and places of those who simply believed and followed you, Lord Jesus. But we're here. Oh, Lord, don't let go of us. Help us not to, to resist your call wherever you're speaking today. Lord, you have called each of us to a place that you're asking us to acknowledge you as your Lord and, our Lord and Savior, as the one who can do it again in so many ways. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you will take us as men and women, as broken vessels that you can use in your work wherever you choose to use us. Lord, where you want us to go, I pray that we can go and we can be surrendered and we will follow you until you come again. And also, Lord, that we will enjoy the wonderful privilege of watching you work and multiply in the many ways that you choose to work. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. Thank you for who you are. In Christ's name we pray, amen.